0: Hey, this is Brennan, yourself from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. Are you glad to be in the house of the Lord today? Yeah. Amen, me too, me too. We are in a series that we're actually calling a season. It's, it's more than just a teaching series, but we're in a season of life as our church. Where we're really doing not just inventory, but we're actually asking the Lord to clarify to us what he wants to establish in us in this season as his church. And we've been calling this time, and as for me in my house, time, where we have clarified some things and we are taking our cues from Joshua chapter, four, chapter 24, where he calls on Israel in a time of transition and disruption, similar to what we're in right now, this kind of in-between space where we aren't where we were and we're not where we're going. We're kind of in this middle zone, and he calls them and he says, look, you need to make a choice today because indecision is a decision, and you need to make a choice as to whom you will serve. And he says, as for me and my house, we will serve, yeah, we'll serve the Lord. And we've been asking the question over the last several weeks What does it mean to serve the Lord in our day? What do we need to establish in this house called King's Church? In the first week, we established first and foremost that this house is built on the king. It is built for the king and his kingdom. We are a Jesus people. Can I get an amen? And so we want to establish that we are king and kingdom people, and we want to recognize that there are forces at work in this world, and there is an enemy that is trying to distort the truth to keep us from seeing Jesus as he really is, to keep us from experiencing Jesus for who he really is. He tries to distort the truth. The enemy does. And then we talked about how if if the enemy can't distort the truth, he, he then moves to try to distract us from the mission to convince us to not do things or distract us from doing the very things that Jesus asked us to do. And we talked all about the mission of the church to be a blessing to all nations, how God wants to ransom and redeem a people so that as he blesses them, they will be a blessing to the whole earth until the whole world, until Halifax and West St. John and Charlottetown. And St. John looks more like heaven. That's our job on the earth, amen? It's to see people come to know King Jesus and the salvation and life that he offers and to see them transformed. This isn't just about raising your hand and saying, I believe in Jesus. It's about following Jesus and trusting that as you do, he's transforming us into his very image. We have been made in the image of God. And we, as we follow him, the Bible says, like it says in 2 Corinthians, as we behold him with unveiled faces, we are being transformed into ever-increasing glory. Whoo! And that's the mission of God and God has raised the church up to accomplish that mission. And then last week, we talked about how if the enemy doesn't distort the truth and distract the mission, what he tries to do is divide the church and try to make us get divided by any means he can possibly do. And we talked about how God's heart for his home is unity. God loves when brothers dwell in unity. And that we talked about how the spirit and the kingdom of God actually flows when we have become unified. But today I want to step one step further into another deception. And here's the big idea. And I want to just, I'm going to throw the big idea out there. And then I'm going to unpack Mark chapter 11 in just a minute. But the big idea is this. It is entirely possible for us as the people of God, for the house, so to speak, to have nice, neat, fashioned theology, to be able to answer all the tests, all the questions on the test correctly about who Jesus is and to be gospel fluent. It's possible to have our theology buttoned down and it's possible to even be on mission and it's possible even to dwell in unity and have all the appearance of a healthy church and yet be so close and so far. It's possible to actually look entirely like we are healthy as followers of Jesus and as a community of faith. It's, it's possible to look the part, but in actuality, be dead and hollow on the inside. Now, you, you know this to be true in your life. You might have experienced it in your life, or you maybe seen it, just, just living your life. You think about the marriage that ju- they just seemed to be so in love. And then what? It, it fell apart. Looks can be deceiving, can't they? Or the business, anybody still mourning over a business that they lost, that like your favorite pizza joint, it seemed to be doing so well, and then you just showed up and it was gone one day? It's because the appearance of something doesn't necessarily mean that there's real life that's going to be sustainable. Maybe the pastor that fell from grace, as we say, which is impossible based on my theology of grace, but anyway. Or the individual who took their own life, we're always shocked when a celebrity commits suicide, aren't we? They had it all. The appearance of life and actual life are two different things. It's possible to look like you're doing well, and it's possible to think that you're doing well, but in actuality, be, have a hollow deadness lurking beneath the surface that, given enough time, will eventually make itself known. And we've seen this to be true. And Jesus talked about how true this is and how common and how not just possible it is, but how probable it is that people who think that they're following him and churches that think that they're healthy are doing all the right things and checking all the right boxes, but in actuality being very dead inside. Look what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. These are chilling, chilling words. If these don't make your hair stand up or at least do inventory, you're not listening. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's good theology. Jesus is Lord of Lords but he says not everybody who gets that not everybody who says Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven then he breaks it down further he says many will say not not a few that's a scary word many will say to me on that day Lord Lord did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name, perform many miracles. Now, that's, that's chilling because those are power gifts. You can even be operating in power. And look what Jesus says. Then I will tell them plainly, I never, I never actually knew you. You were doing all the right things, but I never knew you. And so I, away from me, evildoers. You see, the fact is we can be fooled into the appearance of life But Jesus isn't fooled. Jesus can see through the facade and through the counterfeit. He knows if there's real life in there. He knows, even though you might have all the right things in order and you might look the part... He knows if there's real life in there or not. And this gives us a window into what Jesus was doing with the fig tree when he cursed the fig tree and he cleanses the temple in Mark chapter 11. Now, when we read that and you see Jesus react, I mean, that's a strong react. If that was a YouTube video, you'd see, it'd say, Jesus destroys the fig tree and temple, right? It's like a strong react. It's like he needs a Snickers, right? It's like not uncharacteristic of him. Like, that's not the Jesus we know. Jesus is nice. No, Jesus is kind. It's not, anyway. And he reacts, and what's going on? Why is he reacting? And it's because the fig tree and the temple had the appearance of life but didn't actually have life. It said he saw a fig tree from a way off, and then when he got closer, it said even though it was in leaf, there were no figs on it. And then that's connected to the temple. And many scholars believe this is actually a living parable. He wasn't just having a temper tantrum. He was teaching. Everything Jesus did was calculated. Now, before you completely judge Jesus in how he might have overreacted to this, you actually have some similar things inside of you that I think gives us a clue into how Jesus and why Jesus was acting this way. Did you know that as robotics have been developed over the last 20, 30 years, And as animation has grown, I mean, you look back to the early Mickey Mouse animations to now, I mean, the CGI is incredible, isn't it? But as robotics and as animation have gotten better, robotics and animators, or roboticists and animators, have actually learned about this thing inside human beings that when something gets really close to looking human, but isn't actually human... There's something inside of us that triggers a revolse, like a, a, a repulsive reaction. This is why some of you you don't like ventriloquist dolls or porcelain dolls, because there's this kind of thing in them that's like, "You look like you're imposing, you look like you're pretending to be human. I know you're dead, but you look really alive and it's creeping me out." That is called the uncanny valley. There was a robotics professor named Masimo Mori and he posited that when something looks really close, anybody just go, Ugh. when something looks really close to being human but isn't actually human, he calls it, the reaction inside of us is called the uncanny valley. He basically posited that when something has a kind of a, on a scale of human likeness, when, when something looks very human, or, you, you know, if we call this, this would be you. We put you here, a human being. And maybe a, a robot with, you know, no human face is over here. But when things get really close to looking humanistic, don't Google a, a, a Bunraku puppet. They are the creepiest things. YouTube it if you want to have nightmares. But the closer something gets to looking human, but it isn't actually human our reaction drops off, we'll actually find a little fake robot endearing at some level. But once it gets very close to human, there's something inside of us that says, that's an imposter and I need to be on my guard. That's not actually alive. And you can actually spot it in the eyes. This is why, I mean, we could geek out on this for a while, but this is why Pixar and all the animation uh, companies know that when you are animating a human, you have to blow out the eyes to make it look like a caricature. Did you know that the first Shrek, uh, when they were kind of showing the the previews, the the test groups, they actually had to change how the humans looked because their eyes were too lifelike and people were like, ugh. That is the uncanny valley. It's the reaction that we all have when something has the appearance of life. It looks too lifelike, but in actuality is a machine. And I think, I tell you all this to tell you, I think that is what was going on when Jesus had the reaction in the temple. I actually think this is why Jesus was flipping out in the temple because people were deceived by the activity of the temple. It had the appearance of a life-giving thing. It had the appearance of life, but in actuality, it was just a robotic series of mechanisms and rites and rituals that were going through the motions, but there was no life. He could see it in the eyes. There was no life in there. And so Jesus flips out and he says, he calls them out for it. He says, this thing is not alive. You guys are going through religious rituals, but my house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. This was going to be a house of prayer. This was going to be a place where people came and encountered the living God, and you have made it into a den. Of robbers. Now he kind of unpacks a little bit what's going on. Did you notice? It tells us, Mark tells us what was going on and what Jesus began to do when he goes in. It tells us that he was driving out those who were buying and selling. He was overturning the tables of money changers. This is happening in God's temple. And then he wouldn't let people, I, I, this is kind of funny to me a little bit. He wouldn't let people carry merchandise through the temple. I like, kind of get this picture of Jesus like blocking them like this. He wouldn't let people pass through the temple. Now, what's going on? Well, Jesus is reacting at the fact that the temple was exploiting people. You had to actually use a certain type of money in the temple, a certain type of currency that that the the Jews were producing at that time, and you had to get it traded, and your money, you had to get it traded for temple money, and that temple money, it was bought at a premium. And not only that... So people were getting ripped off, but not only that, there was this gross desecration of the holy. They were selling doves. Now, they were selling doves because it was more convenient to offer a sacrifice that they didn't have to carry from their homes. But how many of you know that convenience and sacrifice aren't the same thing? Sacrifice and convenience don't necessarily work that well together. And then he was he was blocking people from going through the temple and that gives us a picture into what was going on. The temple in, in, in Jerusalem at that time was right smack dab in the middle of the city and there was commerce and markets built all around it. Many people would use the outer court as a shortcut to get to the other side of the city. So they had no intention of engaging God there. They just wanted to get through and they wanted a shortcut to get to where they really want. That sounds like a, a sermon. And so Jesus was blocking them. They had desecrated the holy. They'd made it a highway to get to where they really wanted. They'd made it a place of convenience. And they were now exploiting people, turning a profit on the place that was supposed to be a place of the presence of God. And so Jesus wasn't fooled by the appearance. He's freaked out and he's repulsed by it. It's kind of the uncanny valley. And Jesus, he says, my house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. This wasn't supposed to be a a mall. This wasn't supposed to be a bank. This isn't a highway. This is a place of a dwelling. You're supposed to experience God here. That's why Jesus is freaking out. Because if we talked about this, we talked about when we dwell in unity, God's design for the temple. We talked about how God gave his people to the earth to be a blessed, to be a blessing to all nations. And the temple was designed to be a place where God's glory dwells. It was supposed to be a place where people could come from all around. And they could come and they could experience the presence of God. And they could experience the mercy of God. They could experience, they could come and they could bring a sacrifice and they could know that something has happened where God has forgiven me and I am now in good standing with God. They could experience reconciliation. They could experience the truth. They could experience the presence, the power, the glory. It was supposed to be a place where heaven and earth intersect. That was what the temple was meant to be. And in fact, that's the origins. If we could go back and do a study and go in the Wayback Machine, back to to the book of Exodus, you know, or even Genesis, God raises up Abraham. He says, my people are going to be a blessing to all nations. And then we find out in Exodus, God liberates the children of Israel and they go into the wilderness and God gives them a place where his glory will dwell. They set up the tabernacle. Anybody remember that? And the tabernacle is the place where God's people could come and encounter him. And then once they get established in the promised land, what happens? They build this massive, beautiful temple. And again, it's the space where God's glory and presence is meant to dwell. And people could come and experience the living God there. And if you go back and you look at 2 Chronicles, when when they created the temple and they consecrated it, they had the most lavish uh, consecration service. I mean, hundreds of thousands of sacrifices, millions of worshipers there, just pouring out praise upon God. And the Bible says that when Solomon came out and he prayed and he said, God, now dwell here, the presence of God came down in a fireball. And the, the presence of God was so thick that people couldn't even stand up. Now, I've had some glimpses in my lifetime where the presence of God came in where literally it pushes you down. The glory of God carries weight. And this was meant to be a place where God's glory dwells. But what Jesus was getting at is that over time, something had happened in the children of Israel. Now, you gotta understand, it had been almost a 1,000 years from the time when when the temple was consecrated and the glory came to the time of Jesus. 950 years later, of going through the motions. They had built a machinery that had the appearance of life but wasn't actually alive. It was just rote religion. And Jesus is reacting because the presence is gone. The glory has left the building. And I think that's why he's reacting so hard. You know, sometimes we think when we think about sin, we think about sin as, as something that you did, something wrong that you did. But I think what grieves God about sin isn't the wrong that we did, it's the right that we missed out on. That's why the Bible says that that sin is actually falling short of the glory of God. In other words, you know, the temple was made for glory and they were settling for commerce. The temple was made for the presence and power of God and they were settling for rites and rituals. And that's what's so grievous to God. He's like, are you kidding me? I gave you a place where my presence would dwell and you're coming here to just stick your face in a book and offer a sacrifice and then go on about your business or you're using this as a shortcut. This is supposed to be a place for my presence and you're coming in here acting like this is good enough. This is so far short of what I called you to. And this is what he does for us. I think this is what grieves God about the sin and the choices in our lives that we make. It's it's not the thing that we did, it's what we missed out on getting. It's like you you those of us who are addicted to the validation of other people. You know, you live for that Facebook post. You post something like I wonder how many people are going to like it. And I think God's just looking down saying, "Are you serious?" those stupid little hearts satisfy you? You were made for the validation of my word and my love and my presence. And you are running around snapping selfies, hoping that people can satisfy the eternal hole in your soul that I was made to fill. Are you serious? I think that's why God reacts. Or we, some of us like, like I'm an Enneagram three. I can get caught up on the successometer. meter Right? Just wanting to win. Let's win at old man basketball. Let's win. Let's win at church. Let's win. And I feel God just saying, Are you serious? You think the glory of winning an old man pickup game is really going to satisfy you? Or you think the glory of having the biggest church is really going to satisfy you? It's hollow, it's empty. It's meaningless. You were made for glory and you're settling for this? Or some of, you, some of you struggle with substances. You know, it's alcohol or maybe it's a drug or maybe it's pornography or maybe it's food. And I just feel like, you know, we get caught up on the thing and we're like, oh, this is bad. But God's like, no, you're missing out on what's good. You're missing out on, are you serious? You think, you think that bottle can replace the satisfaction that I can give you? What? See, sin is the fact that we were designed for so much more, but we operate so far beneath it. That's why it says, like, all have sinned and fall short. Short. Of the glory of God. You were made for glory. I was made for glory. The temple, the people of God were made for glory. And this is why Jesus is reacting. It's like when we see those fake robots, we see it in the eyes. We're like, wow, you look the part, but you are grossing me out because I know life and that's not life. And that's what Jesus was doing in the temple. He's like, wow, a person who didn't know, they'd see all the sacrifices and they'd see the busyness and they'd see the, the scripture being read and the, the, the rites and rituals being performed. And yet they don't don't even realize there's no life in them. And it can happen to the church. And what happens is, when the glory goes, Jesus said, this was supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of the presence of God. And what did he say? He says, you've turned it into a den of robbers. So in other words, a, a thing that was supposed to be a giving thing on the earth when the glory is no longer there to fulfill it, it starts to look to other things to draw from. Like the giving thing became a taking thing. The place that was supposed to receive the glory of God and give the glory of God and the presence of God to the earth, when the glory departs, we start looking horizontally to fulfill the glory. And this is why I said this has become a den of robbers The giving thing has become a taking thing. See, the problem, you've created a machinery that's now dependent on commerce and it's dependent on people's participation and it's dependent on all these things when you are actually meant to be dependent on my presence. And now that my presence is gone, you just need more and more and more and you're consuming. See, that's the problem with machines. The problem with machines, when we build up a religious machinery, the problem is it just takes more and more. Machines consume, don't they? They draw power. And the thing that was supposed to give to the earth is now, it sucks. And I don't mean that to be crass. I mean, it now exists to perpetuate its own existence. It needs you to show up. It needs you to do your job. It needs you to buy sacrifices. It needs you to toe the line. And the giving thing becomes a taking thing, it starts to consume. And you see this. Churches fight this. We fight this. It's so easy to just become this big machinery that just needs people to plug in. But God didn't design us for that. The other problem with machines is they corrupt, don't they? They corrupt. They corrode. They break down. Anybody own a Ford? Actually, that's not true. I'm a Ford guy, and I've had great luck with Fords, except for one. One was a lemon, but, but machines corrupt. They break down. And so when the glory goes, and I feel like I need to just highlight this because we, we need to know it when we see it. Jesus knew it when he saw it. When the glory departs, the church starts to get mechanical. And Christians start to get mechanical. And what happens is you'll see tradition and sentiment start to rise Remember the glory days? Remember back when we used to? And then as passion dies down that comes from intimacy with God, programs are built up to start recreating and replicating and manufacturing the very thing that God wanted to give us through his presence. And as transformation stops happening because we are no longer beholding his glory, behavior modification starts rising up hold the line, be a good Christian. Whatever happened to my yoke is easy, my burden is light. As heart revelation from being in his presence, from opening your heart to his word and saying, God, read me as I read this. As heart revelation wanes, information rises. Good thoughts, pastor, I liked your talk As demonstrations of power because you're in the presence of God start to dissipate, doubt will rise. That's why you have full branches of the church who say that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that stuff anymore. You know where they've got that? Not from here. They got it from their experience. They haven't seen it. So they build up a mental framework to justify their experience instead of coming under what the Word says. And if not doubt, you also see other channels of the church that that operate in deception. They hoot and holler and they hype themselves up in such a way that they pretend that that's glory and that's the power of God, but it's just really just this kind of circus level excitement is all it is. It messes up kingdom relationships. We'll talk more about that next week. And, And here's the crazy thing, and we're seeing this in our day. When the glory of God leaves, the grace and truth of the word starts to get compromised. And so you'll see some people run with grace and say, it doesn't matter what I do at all. I can do whatever I want. The grace of God's got me covered, right? There are people who live as though this isn't the truth, or they can edit it to make it say whatever they want. In the beginning, God made man and birthing people. Or you see people who will run the total opposite direction and use this as a weapon to control people as though there's not grace, as though God is not full of grace and truth. See, that's the problem. Machines eventually, they start to consume and they start to corrupt. You know, I know know a lot of us, we wonder why, you know, why can a pastor at the head of a church, why can he fall? Why can he get caught up in sin? Well, first of all, we pastors are just like you, and the same way that when the glory of God is not occupying your mind and your heart in, its, in, in full and meaningful ways, we, we can get caught up in patterns of thinking and behavior that will eventually crack and destroy. That's why. That's why, you know, you think about the pedophilia that's happened in, in, in the church. Let's not just pick on the Catholic church. How can that happen? I'll tell you how it can happen. It doesn't happen in the presence of God. I'll tell you that. He's not in that equation. Nobody can do that with God, right? How can Westboro Baptist take this and pick it and say God hates? it's It's not with God's presence. It's not with God's partnership. This is what happens when the glory fades. And this is why Jesus was freaking out on the temple that day. He's like, this is a gross fabrication that is manipulating and twisted and it is tricking people and I'm not having it. Timothy was warned. I I read this this week, and I was just chilled by it. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does that not sound like our day? And here's the key though, having a form of godliness but denying its power or the very presence to have nothing to do with such people, have nothing to do with them. Now, here's the good news and I wanna pivot. Jesus gives the way back. He He never gives an indictment without an invitation. You need to hear that. If you ever come to church and just get beat up but not invited to something better, you, need to, you always need to hear the invitation. Here, here, here's, let's, let's finish Mark chapter 11. Notice this. So Jesus cleanses the, cleanses the temple. He curses the fig tree, cleanses the temple. And this is, this is the next day. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. He cursed the roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered And Jesus answered them. Now, watch this. This seems like a confusing connection, but think about it in the terms of the presence and prayer. Have faith in God. What's faith? Faith is intentional connection, belief. It's activation. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea. Now, it's important you know that the temple was actually on a mountain. He was literally saying this in front of the mountain. He'd also said things like, I'm going to destroy this and rebuild it in three days. Whoever says, throw yourself into the sea and does not believe or does not doubt in his heart, but believes in what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in, can we say it? Whatever you ask for in prayer, this is the key. Prayer is the key. Believe that you have it and it will be yours. What's he talking about? He's, he's, now, scholars think this is a living parable, like I said. And he's talking about what he came to do, ultimately. It's encoded in here. I mean, you think about he cursed a tree. Does that sound familiar? The cursed tree? He was hung on a tree that became the curse for us all right there in in stone's throw away from the temple that was no longer longer functioning the way it was designed to do. He hung on that tree. He was buried in the ground. He dealt with the root of sin. He dealt with the root of religion. He dealt with the root of death and then rose again. And we just talked about it earlier in worship. He reestablished connection to God. That's what the gospel is, right? We have been reconciled to God. The kingdom is at hand. Turn and connect. Now Now watch this. What's he saying? He's inviting you to come to him. He's inviting us to turn to the tree of life, to come to the tree that will bear fruit, to come to the one, to come to me and live. He said it in a different way. One time he said, I am the vine and you are the... Yes. Remain in me. Connect to me. And you will, (laughs) we need to read that one. (laughs) Remain in me and you will bear much fruit, AKA you will live. Life will happen, but he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. What's the point? The point is his presence. The point is connection with his presence. So so what am I getting at here? What's this idea about this house of prayer? Jesus destroyed the temple. Jesus became the new temple. He is now the one through whom mercy flows. He is the place to come to, to receive life, to receive peace, to receive power, to receive hope, to receive restoration, to receive reconciliation. He is that intersection of heaven and earth. Hang with me. He is where heaven and earth meet. And our job is to simply stay at that place. To remain in him. It was never about church services and sermons and songs. Those are not the point. They're a means to help us abide. The point is to be with him. And how... How unimaginable is that? That that the King of Kings wants to be with you? What? And how flagrant is it? I mean, you think Jesus got really upset at the temple because they had gotten into this machinery of a relationship with God and they didn't even have the incarnate Son yet. He hadn't even made a way for us to enter the holy place. And then Jesus, through his own blood, tears the veil, the separation between heaven and earth, and invites all men and all women to come to him that we can know life and hope and peace and be caught up in his life. And yet we will settle to fabricate this religious experience having a form of godliness but denying the power that can actually make us godly. What am I saying? I'm saying that intimacy with God, connection to God is the source for real vitality. And there are no substitutes. Heaven gains entry when you are connected to Jesus, period. And and y'all, I need to press on this. It's more than just a general connection. Like, yeah, I follow Jesus. No, heaven is gaining entry when you turn your mind and your activity, and your voice, when you turn yourself to him, heaven begins to flow through him into you. Not in the general sense, in a specific, intimate sense. This is the word I just felt the Lord say to us today. We will never be more fruitful than we are prayerful. Period. We will never be more fruitful than we are prayerful. And I, and I want to burst some bubbles today, even in myself, because I'm prone to this. No amount of podcasts, books, sermons, songs, church services, theology, success, or self-help can replace your prayerlessness, can make up for your prayerlessness. No amount of these things can make up for a prayerless life. And Jesus isn't inviting you to come to Him through my life. We don't believe in that. He's inviting you to come to Him and abide in Him, you personally. When the prayer of your life stops, the presence of glory is cut. The presence and the glory of God is cut off. It's true for you, and it's true for the church. So this is I'm calling us as we launch into Prayer Week. This is a call to prayer. Now, what is prayer? Really quick. Prayer is much more than just. Carry underwood, Jesus take the wheel. Prayer is not primarily reactive in any, at all. Prayer is something that is proactive. Philip Yancey, one of my favorite definitions of prayer, he says prayer means keeping company with God who is already present. It's turning yourself in every moment, having an awareness and an obedience and a, and a disposition of worship to God through Christ. That's prayer. That's prayer. Prayer is connection with God. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, says, prayer is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. We get it twisted, though, don't we? We think that prayer is really the means to the end, but it's not. Prayer is the invitation. It is the end. It is the end. Prayer is, is much more than reactively reacting to your life and crying out. I mean, God God will listen. God, God loves to come, and when we call on his name, and I'm not saying that you can't react in a moment and say, Jesus, take the wheel. That's fine, but prayer is much more than reactively asking God for things. It's proactive engagement with God. This is why Paul says, pray without ceasing. He didn't mean stay on your knees 24-7. He meant walk with God, talk with God, live with God. Engage with him at the workplace. When you're teaching the kids, when you're doing the surgery, when you're doing the laundry, do it and abide in him. That's what prayer is. So there's a bunch of forms of prayer. Prayer is worship, it's adoration. When you worship, when you sing, when you meditate on the word, when you open the word and let it speak to you, that's, that's prayer. It's creating a channel of connection with God. It's confession, when you deal honestly before God, it's reconciliation, healing, restoration. Prayer, it's when, we, when we give thanks, that's, that's a form of prayer. When, when we ask God for what we need, God does invite us to cast our cares on him. When we pray, we align with God, we connect with God, we receive from God. And this is the point Jesus was getting at in Mark 11. If you will just pray, anything is possible. Because you are now connected to the one for whom nothing is impossible. This is what he was getting at. He said, if you just would pray, if you just abide in me, you could say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea. Anything is possible. Prayer is simply everything. What do we have if we don't have his presence? Hollow religion. But Jesus did not come to establish a religion. He came to give us himself that we could know him, be with him. When the house prays, anything is possible. As for me and my house, we will be a house of prayer. Because when we become a house of prayer, we become a house of mercy When we start to pray as individuals and as a church, God's glory begins to dwell. And how many of you know we talked about this last week? The church is not a building, the church is a it's a it's a it's a what? It's a people. And as we come together in prayer and we get filled up with his glory and his presence, we take it wherever we go. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. But it only happens through prayer. I'll tell you what this world needs right now is not religious people. It needs people filled with the presence of God. The, people doesn't, the, church, the world doesn't need better arguments. The world needs people who are walking in truth. The world needs people It is time for the church, it's time for our church, the church in the West to rise up. Because when the house, when the church becomes a house of prayer, we become a house of the presence of God. Which means if we're, if the presence of God is here, freedom is here, amen? Glory, we we become a house of glory. The house of prayer is a house of glory. It's a house of presence. It's a house of miracles. It's a house of plenty. It's a house of refuge. It's a house of peace. It's a house of unity and real community. It's a house of goodness. It's a house of real family. A wild, multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-socioeconomic family. It's a house of joy. It's a house of praise. It's a house of love. It's a house of truth. The house of prayer is a house of grace. It's a house where mercy just flows without end. It's a house of salvation for all who believe. It's a house of forgiveness. It's a house of restitution and resurrection and reconciliation. If we would just pray, all of those things start flowing. The church can't manufacture these things. We cannot manufacture joy. We can't manufacture salvation. We can't manufacture power. We can only receive it and release it. And that's all God wants. I want to level with you, church. God is calling our church deeper into prayer. And what I mean by that is, He's calling us deeper into His presence. I believe he's calling us to push past whatever systems we've built up to, to, to kind of satisfy us, to push past consumer Christianity and celebrity Christianity and personality cults, to push past all of that. Man, imagine becoming a place that if we, if we could just like, I was thinking about it like this. If I, if I asked T.D. Jakes to come here this Thursday night, said, hey, we're gonna be having a prayer service Thursday night at the Valley and we'll beam you in to West Side. And if I ask T.D. Jakes to come or whoever your favorite preacher is, whatever, Furtick or somebody, this place will be packed. But shouldn't that cause us a little bit of, oh, uh, we've been here every week expecting Jesus to be here. And that doesn't awaken something in us. You see, if if your faith is through someone else's faith, it's not yours. We have got to push deeper. I think God wants us to become a people in this season that are addicted to his presence. We just want his presence. I didn't, you know, sermons are great and songs are great and programs are great and initiatives are great, but if we don't have his presence, we don't have anything. If you don't have his presence, you don't have anything nothing lasting you're you it's uncanny valley you're just robot the presence is our pursuit in this season no longer just a means to an end i had the lord speak to me last thursday night in worship and he said you're going to be you're going to find yourself in rooms like in the past i've been in many rooms where people ask us ask me you know what's how's your church doing Is it succeeding? And I've been able to give qualified answers. Yeah, you know, people are finding Jesus, all these baptisms and people are giving and they're loving their community and we're growing in in unity and these things are all great. But I, I felt the Lord say, I actually want the appetite for my presence to be the singular measure of success in your church. And if you can't say come and just be in his presence on Thursday night and you get 12 people, you're not succeeding. I'm saying that to all of us because I fight it too, y'all. It's easier just to come and hear a sermon and check that off your your list and head, head back out into your life. But God calls us to more than that. He calls us to his presence. God said to me, when, when, when people ask you how your church doing, how's your church doing? If you can't say they're growing in their affection for my presence, you are not succeeding. And he said it for me too. When someone asks you how you're doing, before you say, my wife's awesome. My marriage is good. My kids are doing good. I love my job. I love my life. If you don't, check the box that says, I'm growing in my affection for his presence. You are not succeeding. His presence is everything, guys. It's everything. He wants to know you and be with you. He wants to go with you in your day-to-day life, in your ordinary. He wants to bring glory into your ordinary. He wants to be with you in the valley. He wants to be there with you when you get the promotion. And we're not just talking about some needy friend here. We're talking about Almighty God. That should undo you. We cannot be satisfied with institution when we were made for incarnation. And we cannot be satisfied with religion when we were made for relationship. There is no substitute. It's either alive or it's dead. It's either living organic or it's robotic. So this is a call to prayer. This is a call to his presence. As for me and my house, we will be a house of prayer. As for me and my house, I will be a person who practices the presence of God. I want to know him. I want to be filled with him. I want to hear his voice. I want to say what he wants me to say. I want to to spend so much time with him that I become like him. I want to be transformed into ever-increasing glory. And I want us to be a people who are being transformed into ever-increasing glory. That when people, when the world sees us, make no mistake, they don't just see religious rites and rituals, they see glory they see power they see a love they've never heard of they see truth that is unwavering they see compassion they see mercy they see power they see miracles they see love they see light they see hope they say peace they see peace as for me and my house we will be a house of prayer amen do you hear the invitation I hope you don't feel your wrists slapped. I hope you hear God say, come to me. Come to me. Come to me, King's Church. So I feel like there's some people right now that it's been a while and God's saying, hey, I'm not holding, I'm not holding the years that you've settled for hollow religion. I'm not holding that against you. Just come to me right now. Just just, just turn to me. As for me in my house, will be a house of prayer. So prayer week. pray for us, dismiss you in just a minute. I just feel this is a holy moment, though. Do you feel the Spirit say, yes, 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 yes? Do you feel that, or is it just me? In 2015, I think, we started Love Week. And the Lord gave us a vision that if we could just coordinate generosity, it would do something incredible. And it has. But what we figured out, though, was the incredible thing it was doing was in us more than it was through us. Amen? We've learned that Love Week is more for us than it is for loving the community. And God has changed our church through that initiative, that coordinated initiative. And God brought a vision to us this year that what would happen if we coordinated just a week where we just went after the presence of God and we walked through our community and we prayed and we blessed our community and we gathered our families and we prayed and we just, we just dwelt in the presence of God like, like, like no other time we ever have as a church. What, what would happen if 3,000 people just said, as for me in my house, as for me in this week, I'm going to pray like without ceasing. What would happen? What could happen? Well, anything could happen but my heart and my hope and what I think God is gonna do in this season is he's gonna capture our hearts in a new way. We're gonna come through this week and more than God answering prayers, he's going to be with us and you you will see, you will experience his presence this week. So we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to find ways to engage you can go to the website today. I'll uh, go to kingschurch.cc or prayerweek.cc. We have stuff happening all over the place. So really, there's no excuse. Every morning, Dan will be praying. Every lunch, I'll be praying on live stream. And then we have prayer walks happening. You can go and you can see your map. We're gonna cover this region with prayer. We have training classes, we have family prayer, we have youth prayer night, we have a 24-hour prayer vigil, vigil. Thursday night prayer and worship. Can I just put a plug in? Can you please take that seriously, church? I know there's a there's a call on King's Church similar to you know how you've heard of Brooklyn Tabernacle? They're known for their prayer service. Not that they're Grammy award winning choir, they're known for their prayer service, and I feel like the Lord has spoken that over us. You're not gonna be known for being creative or ingenuitive or large, you're gonna be known as a people of prayer, and it's gotta start in these gatherings. So please come Thursday night, come to the West Side. I know Seth's gonna be trying to arrange some connection in Halifax. But we have options and no excuses, amen? So let's engage this week, and let's just see what happens. Would you stand to your feet? I want to pray and I'm going to release us. I just feel this is a holy moment. So I'm going to pray that God launches us into this week and we step into not just a week and and that this doesn't just become a robotic initiative, but that there is a spark of life that happens inside of us. That this isn't just some set of tasks that we check off a list but we actually embody the life that God has invited us to, amen? So Father, here are your people. Lord, we, we hear the standard to which you've called us. You've called us to know you. God, forgive us for the times where we, all of us, have settled for less. Forgive us for times where we've created a religion out of what was meant to be a relationship. And God, I pray right now over myself and my brothers and sisters at West, at Halifax, Charlottetown. God, awaken an appetite for the real thing, I pray in Jesus' name. Open up a distaste in us for the counterfeit in Jesus' name. Let it not work like never before. And make those counterfeit little machineries that we've built up to try to mimic the life that God has for us. Let them die. We curse religion. We curse fake Christianity. We curse it at the root. And Lord, we turn to you. We turn to the tree that does bear fruit. We wrap ourselves in you today, Jesus. God, I pray for renewal over my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray for the one that hasn't heard your voice in a long time. God, would you, would you wake them up at night? God, would you speak to them through your word? Lord, when they walk when they walk the streets and they do a prayer walk, would they sense your heart for the homes they walk by? God, I just pray right now. Lord, I just, I just partner with the Holy Spirit right now and say in Jesus' name, there will be a connection and a union happen with God's presence this week. And God, we just say, as for us in this house, we will be a house of prayer. Would you use prayer week, God, to create an inferno of prayer in us? And Lord, would it be something that doesn't dissipate, but Lord, it just continues to grow and go, that we would be known as a house of prayer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,